Hello, 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 everyone. This week I am talking to Edie Shepherd. Edie is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organizer at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. She's also a youth worker and an activist and an absolutely beautiful, passionate person. I really enjoyed talking to Edie. This episode has a lot of learning, a lot of vulnerability, laughter. It was just a ripper of an episode. Uh, we discussed things like the loneliness of growing up as an Aboriginal kid in a white school system and strange things that people say to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, gender and sexuality and nearly accidentally dating your cousin and in general dating as a queer black person. And we talked a bit about politics too, the political participation of First Nations peoples, especially the younger generation and colonialism, continuing colonialism and actively decolonizing oneself. And what does that mean for young people? So many important topics. Now, before we get into the episode, I just have a few notes for you. Firstly, you've been hearing me clear my throat quite a bit in my previous episodes, and I'm sorry, okay? I just have a nagging asthma allergy thing that seems to get in a frisky mood during podcast recording. I'm trying to keep it down, but you'll just have to put up with it. In fact, Edie and I have a little surprise... For you in that department coming up in this episode. Uh, you'll also hear that I mispronounced the name of the founder of Black Rainbow, which is a not-for-profit that works in suicide prevention among LGBTQIA plus Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I call him Damon. His name is actually Damien Bonson. Sorry. And finally, uh, this episode makes references to suicide and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that it contains brief references to deceased people. Now that that's out of the way, I really can't wait for you to hear this fantastic episode. This is Amrutha and you're listening to Heckin' Concerned Podcast. Hi Edie. Hello. Welcome to Heckin' Concern Podcast. Thanks for having me. I love your earrings. Thank they you. seem they, deadly. They sure do. House of Dizzy, get around it. Blackfella in um, Fitzroy does these amazing acrylic um, laser cut earrings. They're excellent. Yeah, do they have an Instagram that they people sure can look do. at? They sure do. House of Dizzy, get House around it. House of Dizzy. Okay, I'm going to look that up. because Oh, actually, I saw that on, uh, on Instagram, House of Dizzy. Um, they make... Lots of amazing earrings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And customs as well. So there is nothing you can't get from there. Cool. Um, we were talking before we started recording about the gift of gab. Yes. And that's your gift that you <laughs> bring to your job every day. Mm -hmm. So you work at the Victorian Trades Hall Council as yes. their advisor. No, as the organizer. organizer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I am the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organiser for the Victorian Trades Hall Council. So that's the peak body for trade unions in Victoria. Um, so I look after sort of all of the black stuff, whether it's how we talk to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members or recruit new members or respond industrially to racism. But more than that, um, I'm a strong believer and it's really nice to work in a place that agrees with me that the trade union movement is not just about what happens at work. Um, it's actually about the lives of working people and the working class. So it's the things that will make working people's lives better. So I get to look at those things, but 
for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which is rad. It's good fun. Yeah. What sort of things do you look at outside of the work realm? Um, I mean, there's, where do you even start? Yeah, I guess. Um, It's a pretty big question. It's, it's, it's a, it's a beast of a question. Um, and it's one of those things that we're trying to figure out at the moment what the priority is. Um, so what I'm definitely, I've got two things on my plate at the moment that I'm definitely, that I'm going after hard. So one is the Japarong dispute up in the Western Highway. So for those who are not familiar with it or anything like that, um, there are 800 year old plus sacred women's sites Ooh. up on the Western Highway. I so heard of this. Birthing, birthing trees. trees. Mm. Yes, birthing trees, direction trees, sacred landscape that carries song lines and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and at the moment, the government is trying to knock it down and build a road to save three minutes. So there has been a protest camp. People are living there. They've been living there for a year now. Um, I provide logistical support and also coordinate the union's response, particularly if it becomes um, a bit more of a combative situation where trucks start rolling in and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, And that's just a basic question of an issue of justice, right? Um, Everyone would be up in arms if I turned around with a bulldozer and went after St Paul's Cathedral on Flinders Street. But we live in a world... And on a continent where apparently it is acceptable to desecrate what is sacred to us. Um, so that's one thing that I'm doing, which I guess for a lot of folk who would hear that be like, that's that doesn't seem like a trade union issue. But justice, dignity, fairness, equality are all union issues. And that's how I tackle this. What happens if there's conflict within the union for workers that are working on the side that wants to bulldoze those sites and then there's workers that are supporting the move to protect them we we actually have quite a history of um downing tools um over questions of social injustice they're called green bands basically where it was quite prevalent in the 80s particularly in new south wales where the blf so the builders and laborers federation which was since um deregistered because they were particularly militant and staunch basically would find out about a project whack a green ban on it and say no union worker is going to work on this it's not going to happen so that saved the block in Redfern that saved a lot of community housing there's also a bunch of stuff in Victoria you can do green ban tours they're pretty cool would recommend Ooh, I'll try that um, my role is to educate basically so I will have conversations with leadership, with organisers, with members um, around what is important to make sure that our members in the movement are ready to take that sort of action, mm. which is complex but really rewarding. Mm. <coughs> Stay clear. <coughs> I'm going to do more. <coughs> Get it we all should, out. We should just put this on the podcast, just a minute of us clearing our throats. Stunning. (laughs) Perfection. Uh, It's so stupid and absolutely ridiculous that government would not understand the importance of land and the natural environment to the people that live there. It's such a fucking Eurocentric way of looking at it. To them, it's just a bunch of trees. 
Yeah. But that's been the age old fight. A couple of heels. Yeah. Yeah. That's been the age old fight in Australia, hasn't it? For, mm-hmm. for uh, people to get government to recognize the ways in which um, First Nation people see the world, yep. interact and, and have their histories and their stories and their lives intertwined. Well, it's one of those things where it's like, how do you get people to understand that to, you know, your average gubba walking down the street, they're just walking down the street. But when we're on country, so when I go back to country, it's it's like putting a piece, of, you've been away from a piece of your body and it's everything comes back together. Like our country is an extension of our bodies, the waterways, the rivers, the, the hills and the mountains and all of that sort of stuff. Um, are actually extensions of our body. So when you want to build a road or you want to green light a mine or something like that, those like massive like acts of devastation to the landscape, you're actually assaulting our bodies. Um, and it's, it's, it's a hard thing to try and drill into someone's head. Mm. Especially because these values aren't held very highly in the prevalent culture, these are looked at as very poetic or esoteric things yep. rather than the and realities. Niche. Sorry? Niche. Niche things, you know, or frou-frou, but mm. they don't, they're not acknowledged as the reality of a whole bunch yep. of people. Yeah. Yeah, so bizarre that we've got a set way of thinking about productivity, about what is useful thoughts and what is rational and what is uh, acceptable in the realm of progress and technology and government and then what is just something else that is not important enough to be acknowledged or discussed i mean it's the joys of of ongoing colonization right like you've got one system of belief one way of i mean not one we have many systems of beliefs and ways of existing because we're all in independent nations um hundreds of us like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of nations that have their own ways of doing things that have thrived for time immemorial. But, you know, 231 years ago, some tall ships arrived, kind of fucked up the joint a little bit, pardon my French. Um, It's like getting the world's worst housemate, right? Like you've, they've just sort of moved in. You don't know why they're there. And then they just ruin the kitchen. Like what <laughs> I, yeah. and don't pay rent mm. what um it's yeah it's wild so you grew up in new south wales yes i did and when did you uh where in new south wales did you grow up um so out around the blue mountains mm-hmm. um beautiful place to live not great when you're a young person who can't drive and want to do things but you're on a farm <laughs> um love going back to visit now that i'm older and i can drive but um mm. yeah got I was, you know, lucky enough to be able to grow up on country around my mob and my family and all of that sort of stuff Mm. um, with my 10 bajillion cousins and aunties and uncles and grandparents and all of that sort of stuff. So it was very much um, a idyllic black childhood in a lot of ways um, where I was very much like I was aware that things were bad, but it wasn't until maybe 2008 no, it was 2006 where I became acutely aware that actually things were really, really bad. Um, and that was when the Northern Territory intervention started. Um, and that was sort of like that light bulb moment where I was like, oh, okay. So like you hear that 
there's all of this and you know you experience small town racism for sure um but it was like that moment where you started seeing footage of tanks rolling in where i was like oh shit no the frontier wars haven't actually ended like this is still open warfare what on earth is going on the tender age of like how old was i in 2006 i'm 26 now so uh, 13, 13 14 years ago yeah yeah um it was yeah just this really like defining moment of me being like oh no colonization isn't this thing that happened it's this thing that's happening yeah um <clears throat> far out how did your parents explain that to you? My mum has never shielded me from anything. She is has always been of the philosophy, if I'm old enough to ask the question, I'm old enough to get the answer. Mm. Um, so, like, we'd always have, we'd always talk about it and my family would always talk about all of this sort of stuff. Um, like, I remember learning about the stolen generations for the first time and just like crying my eyes out um as my grandpa would sit down and talk through what that actually was and what that meant and all of this sort of stuff yeah um so it wasn't it's not so much that I was never aware of it it was a I wasn't active yet but I mean I was a child so there is um, the, the very reality of um, intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. So even if you were a kid, you still had family that was still grappling with that trauma. Yeah. You were picking it up from them. You were processing it, what it means to your loved ones and what it means to you. And I can imagine um, that this was always something going on in your mind, this awareness. Yeah, my um, my grandfather, before he passed, used to always say you don't have a choice if you're black you're born into politics and it's it didn't that didn't mean much to me as a kid cuz like as I'm older I look back at what was going on and I was like oh no I was definitely engaged in politics my whole life but I was like no what's politics I'm a child ha <laughs> um but it was very much like this very acute awareness that there was there is there is this divide um and even though a lot of my a lot of my family is quite advantaged compared to you know some of my you know aboriginal and torres strait islander siblings um all around the country there's still this divide where you know whether it's a lingering look when we're in a shop or always getting our bags checked when we're walking in as well as walking out or being refused service and that sort of stuff um it, it was always this thing that i was aware of but I didn't, I guess I didn't really understand how different my side of the fence was to the settler side of the fence until I was a bit older. Mm. Um, I think I just sort of walked through the world being like, oh, I guess it's this shit for everyone. All right, keep going. Boo, boo, boo. Yeah. (laughs) When you're a kid, you're trying to normalize um, what you see around you uh, because it's so painful to really admit how different you are. Uh, And you internalize other people's hate. Like, this is the way it should be. Boo, 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 boo. It's not until you have that sort of formative moment where you realise what people who aren't you have. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, oh, this is what discriminate like this is actually what discrimination is. This is what structural inequity is. This is what inequality looks like. Okay, I understand. Okay, mm. penny drop. Cool. Not cool. It's it sucks, but yeah. all right, I get it now. 
Do you have ever look back at moments and go, oh, that's what that was? Oh, absolutely. Damn, I was dumb. I didn't realize that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was like things that would happen in primary school or at like the local pool, all of this sort of stuff. Or I have this one memory of going to a friend's house in primary school um, where I was horrendously bullied um, for being different and being weird. I mean, like, not just Aboriginal, but, like, my mum's queer, I'm queer. Like, there was, there's just, like, compounding layers of, of abnormality. Um, and going to her house and her mum yelling at me for sitting on the couch. What? And, yeah, made me get up and put glad wrap down on the seat. What? Yeah. That's something that happened to you? Yeah. And I was like, oh, I guess that's cool and normal at the time. But like now as a 26-year-old fully grown woman, I look back at that and go, oh, wow. <laughs> Whoa, that's that's a lot. The, oh, my God. That is just wild. Wild and gross that it happened uh-huh. in the 2000s. I very quickly changed schools after that. So my mum knew what was going on. Oh, good <laughs> on her. Oh, my God. I- Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. That's a real doozy, eh? Right? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Uh. Fuck. I'm sorry. <laughs> you had to live it. I just heard it. Uh, my socks are blown off. Yeah. You had to live it. And, and people have to live these things every day. It's just sort of like you're a kid and you're like, well, I guess that's that's normal then. All right. Damn. Shit. <laughs> but, yeah, now is... An adult, you look at that and be like, holy, wow. Wow? Okay. All right. We've got some work to do. We've got some work to do. Mm. Do you um, think it's just a small town thing or do people in metro areas face this as well? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop in another anecdote. Um, I was doing a presentation um, on, like, the history of union solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander struggles here in Victoria, as is my job. And someone in the audience put their hand up and I was like, yep, okay, cool. And she was very genuinely confused. Like, I don't think that she meant it how it came out, but basically the thrust of it was I'm confused because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't exist in Victoria because the climate's too cold and they (laughs) prefer warmer temperatures. (laughs) What? What? And I'm just standing there in front of like this plenary of people trying to figure out how the fuck to respond to that. Because I'm like, well, you think Victoria's cold, but where I'm from, it snows. Uh, you know where else is cold? Tasmania. You know where else is cold? The central desert at night. Um, I'm not a fern or a lizard that needs to photosynthesize. Like, excuse me, I'll respond to this once I go lie on my rock outside and catch enough rays. Um, It's just like, what? (laughs) What? I've never heard that one before. You hear a lot, but that was a new one. I was like, what in the what? (laughs) I'm sorry, I can't stop laughing. No, I I pissed myself. I was just standing in the... I just pissed myself. I'm just imagining you in the middle of this very important presentation, PowerPoint, you've probably got a pointer, and then suddenly you're just standing there staring into space wondering, 
it's like you know the eyes off into the middle distance just dissociating from your entire body being like this will pass soon i guess <laughs> oh. oh man did people laugh when she asked that uh ever like it was like you could hear a pin drop because everyone's just like mm. <laughs> <laughs> everyone clenched their butts did this woman just say that because <laughs> i've got quite an expressive face to the point where like it's it's one of the things that I'm working on, a poker face, because I don't have one. Like, if, so, if this is a podcast, so you can't see the face, but it's, like, eyebrows down, like... It's a very cool face. It's a, it's a like, the fuck, man, yeah, yeah. kind of face. <laughs> um, I just... It's like, I pulled that face and the entire audience was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. That's the wrong thing to ask, isn't it? <laughs> oh, wild. Wow. Wild. Um, well, that was in, in Melbourne, the most progressive city in, in the country. Yeah, wow. I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, and this was a couple of years this ago? This was two years ago. <laughs> and how old was this person? Uh, our age. So like <gasps> oh, mid-20s. Wow. Okay, no, actually, 20s? just to clarify, I am not mid-20s. I'm, well, I'm mid-20s. You are. So My let's age. just say your age. <laughs> My age. I am, um, I am on the oldest end of the millennial spectrum i'm oh, 33 years look, old you don't look at a, oh, a day over 27 thanks love <laughs> uh wow this is unbelievable that a young person uh-huh. would you know ha- who has no excuse of being like an older generation stuck in their ways kind of white person would ask this kind of question well i mean it's one of those things right where like sometimes it feels like the rage is going to consume me yeah um and individuals will say really foolish crap. Um, and I think the only way that I can get through it is, like, I, I remember, like, particularly when I started in this role, um, and it was all just a bit overwhelming, like, young, queer, Indigenous woman in a predominantly white movement, and we're working to fix that. But, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. I wish it would, but it doesn't. Um and it's sort of like when people say really silly crap like that, that's obviously on them to not educate because they have not educated themselves. But in the same token, we have had successive governments. We have school systems and curriculum that is politicised, particularly our generation was schooled during the height of the history wars under Howard where – um, colonization and anything to do with that was completely stripped from curriculum. So for a lot of people in our generation, their first sort of access to this kind of information comes at university mm-hmm. where you have to choose to do the subject and choose to go to uni in the first place and all of this sort of stuff where it's it's not as as a as a country, we are not mature enough Mm. as a nation to actually face the very recent history and the reality of what it is to be here so instead of directing my anger at this one (laughs) numpty who said a really absurdly like i've i've just never heard that one before Mm. but instead of directing my anger at her obviously at the end of it i pulled her aside and we had a conversation that like far out those conversations Deeply uncomfortable, but necessary. Yeah. Um, 
glad it was a learning moment for her. Yeah. Um, Sorry, just I don't think you should give her the benefit of the doubt that much, though, because I think she was trying to troll you. And the reason mm. is she felt entitled enough to stand up and ask that question in when a presentation was going on, whereas any normal person would have first tried to pull out their phone and Google, do Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people <laughs> live in cold climates? Well, my orig- my first reaction was like, hello, I'm standing right here. So, like, clearly, yes. Um, oh, no, she's definitely a dickhead. She really should have educated herself, and it's not hard to do that. Mm. So, you know, um, there's a lot of that sense of entitlement. The racism part oh, of it yeah. comes from... Why entitlement is phenomenal. Right? The the fact that she thought that it's she has the the right to stand up and suddenly draw attention away from what's going on to ask a question that she could have found out the answer to and educated herself. Oh, absolutely. But I also, like, I think it's a question of my own sanity because, you know, that's probably one of the more absurd ones I've heard. But, like, I hear crap like that on the reg, right? Mm. Or that, like, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people just died out and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, no, 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 your ancestors just killed mine. (laughs) Like, and that's not me having a go at you. Like, that's just... Mm. it's fact like when we when we speak the truth that's not me having a go at you that's just the reality of the country that we're in and the mechanism by which it came to be that you could be in this place Mm. um but for my own sanity instead of like going full Arya Stark Game of Thrones have a kill list of anyone (laughs) who's ever wronged me looking at those structural things that embolden, empower these dickheads Mm. um, who genuinely believe some of this crap, how, what are the things that I can do to make sure that the generations of young blackfellas who come after me don't have to hear some of the shit that I do? Mm. Um, And having been raised in the height of the history wars, like sitting in class talking about how hard it was for the convicts on the boats and me sitting there being the only black fella in my class being like, mm, hard, huh? Yeah, okay. How about a 97% population reduction? That was pretty fucking hard, man. Um, wow. It's just like it's one of those things where it's like when, when a shitty belief is constantly affirmed both overtly and covertly, mm that's the thing that I'm going to stay angry at rather than individual people because individuals, that's exhausting. Mm. Systems and structures, while big and intimidating, that is something that I can do something about. People can decide to continue to be assholes. Mm -hmm. But I I now have quite a bit of campaigning and organising under my belt. I have thoughts and ways and, and infrastructure to be able to make shit politically necessary to change Mm. um and that's kind of how how i have to think about it or i'll lose my tiny mind yeah so the history wars Mm -hmm. uh, how do they affect curriculum at what year levels do students learn incomplete facts it starts in prep okay it starts in prep so It's like, and particularly sort of like civics and citizenship stuff, you do some in grade five and six and then especially year seven to ten. It's getting better now. It's at a point where it's kind of optional. But um, 
even optional for schools or op- for students optional for schools to present that part of the curriculum but even then you look at like textbooks like high school textbooks where their only depiction of aboriginality is a black as midnight man with a beard in a loincloth holding a spear that's that's not what aboriginal australia looks like by and large anymore like aboriginality is this really broad diverse thing light-skinned folks happen people can live in remote or regional or urban-based communities like where everywhere where people that go about our everyday life it's not just like the old quaint man in a loincloth holding a spear yeah sometimes they wear jackets when it gets cold (laughs) Mm, mm. i'm wearing a long sleeve top right now what and boots i'm wearing shoes people i know radical concept (laughs) wild um i came to australia when i was 15 years old and i did my last two years of high school here i did vce Mm -hmm. but i also did a little bit of year 10 and it wasn't until I was much more grown up that I realized the extent of the violence mm-hmm. in the colonial past because I was taught a very sanitized version. Absolutely. Uh, in school. And it must be making uh, First Nation kids so angry to be sitting in classrooms when they've heard some things from their families and then to be sitting there feeling erased right there in their classrooms. It's speaking from experience, just like incredible isolation like you're just sitting in this room while kids are like doing their family trees like because it's normally like the family tree once you got like once your family got here like what what year were they on the first fleet the second fleet to the point where like because it's glorified to Mm -hmm. this to this extent like I remember sitting in class with this kid really proudly presenting that they were like they had family on the first fleet and I was like like, the thing that I don't understand about the glorification of that, it's going to sound weird coming from me, but let's set aside the violent colonisation and dispossession for a second. Your ancestors were probably starving, having a really bad time in the colonial motherland, bless you, England, um, and got put in a horrific overcrowded boat where most people died on the route over why is that a great thing? Surely that's something to be angry about as yeah. well. Like, Your ancestor was sent to Australia for stealing a <clears> loaf of bread. <throat> to feed their family. To feed their family. And the people that sent them here also then came here and killed my ancestors. And you're, for some reason... Proud. Proud of it. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's just cognitive <clears throat> dis- dissonance for me, I think. Mm. I, I'm Indian and I also have um, ancestors who lived in a colonial nation. Who got fucked by the brits who got fucked by the brits <laughs> but, solidarity but it's turned out a little bit different for india i mean the the effects of the colonization the colonial hangover the internalized racism is still there uh, little things like valuing light skin is you know still a big problem in india light-skinned indians consider themselves to be luckier more privileged people want to have lighter skin dark skin is considered ugly and until my ch- my mom's childhood there were textbooks uh with had you know children's textbooks with like um opposites and one of the opposites was ugly and beautiful and beautiful was a light-skinned woman oh. and ugly was a dark-skinned woman oh. 
even to now to my generation where uh, women are still buying skin lightening creams and songs are still being sung about fair beauty rather than there's no there's no love songs talking about a sexy dark skin yeah. melanin beauty so that colonial hangover is still there there's a lot of other crap you know there's the um, generational trauma that happened with the division of India and Pakistan and how that mm-hmm. has affected but by and large I think the Indians were quite big in numbers enough and had had a history of being invaded yeah so that they were able to overcome that whereas and now I'm a, I'm in Australia I didn't grow up in India so I have sort of removed myself yeah from that but in our country we have our first nation people that are living this every day of of walking around and just the land like you said is a part of your body and it's covered in concrete <laughs> yeah your your identities are being fractured every day right even yeah. now one of the things that really excite excites me about victoria and it was something like once i moved here you know there was the like weird adjustment period and all of that sort of stuff but i think in the last particularly in the last few years and particularly with young blackfellas there's been this real resurgence of sovereignty activism and a resurgence of how we live and breathe our culture um where there's been it's just sort of been this perfect storm where you've got groups like warriors of the aboriginal resistance forming in 2013 and all of this sort of stuff um which is really sort of it's loud it's in your face it's unapologetically black they have num like tons and tons of protests but invasion day is sort of like the one that a fuck ton of people go to where it's as like i'll talk to my i'm the eldest of of the cousin line on my dad's side um and i'll talk to the young ones and they'll be like i've never seen anything like that because it's this activism by young people that is you know we lead the marches we paint the fuck up we do our dances we sing our songs and we shut down the city to make people listen to us and that's it's such a joy to know that a lot of the young ones are seeing that now yeah um and seeing this sort of active joyful defiance Mm -hmm. in the expression of who we are and how we do what we do and that sort of stuff it's 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 like sad that we have to do it Mm. but if we have to do it i wouldn't do it any other way yeah is are young people using social media absolutely to share their identities and share their thoughts we like what instagram is probably the internet has really helped so many people have access to it, which means that we're able to communicate, you know, across hundreds and hundreds of kilometers and that sort of stuff to connect with mob, not just in the East Coast, which is, you know, a lot of activism is East Coast centric on this continent. Um, so, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Queensland, Tasmania doesn't count, um, like <laughs> the East Coast centric, whatever. But I'm we're able to communicate with mob up in the top end or over in the Pilbara in Western Australia and be able to sort of have that point of instant connection where it's not like pen pals, it's cool, this thing's happened, I'm going to yarn to my mate about it over in Boralura 
or something like that where we're able to also learn off each other Mm. and especially as sort of quite a diasporic peoples in that a lot of us don't live on country anymore Mm. where we're able to reconnect with our mob and learn from our mob even when we can't physically be there, Mm. which has been this really amazing thing. But then on top of that, it's one of these, one of those things where as an organizer, as a campaigner, um, I am now, you know, connecting up with first nations folk around the, around the world. So mob up in turtle Island and like, the entire fight around the Dakota access pipeline in the States. I was like, I was able to connect up with other first nations people who Mm -hmm. experience the same dispossession and that sort of stuff as we do here and be able to share stories and strategize and figure out how the fuck we win in a white system. Um, And I can imagine on something like Instagram, somebody has the ability to become an influencer and really share. Yeah their individuality without needing permission, without needing to mm-hmm. navigate any white spaces or, yeah. you know, people to do that. So I'm really happy that young people have access to musicians, artists, sports stars, and all of these things on, on Instagram mm-hmm. that they can, and they can use hashtags to express all of their identities. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting to see young people's feeds are a lot I mean, obviously, it's all about like fashion and makeup and everything like that, or it's about sports or whatever. But then a lot of people also post art or they mm-hmm. post um, stuff related to activism, like really young kids. Yeah. Um, and, and they very proudly post pictures of themselves in traditional um, ceremonies and things like that mm-hmm. and um, learning dances. And I think it's so cool that they're so proud yeah. of their culture. They haven't, um, they haven't lost their connection to their culture. That is us regaining some of what we lost 231 years ago. And every time we speak our language or we sing our songs, we do our dances, we're gaining a piece of ourselves back. You are also the founder of Black Fellows for Marriage Equality. Yeah. Uh, and that how did I do that to myself? Far out. <laughs> <laughs> so this year now, a year after that awful, stupid postal vote, uh, where is the organization at? What are you doing? We found ourselves at this really strange crossroads because it was sort of like this short, sharp campaign that we started kind of by accident. And what we ended up landing on was that we can't continue to um, be all things to the black queer community as black queers ourselves, like, and all of this sort of stuff. But there was, there's an organization that exists called Black Rainbow. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I know um, about Black Rainbow. That has infrastructure and staff and that sort of stuff. So basically we gave them all the money that we had. I'm a campaigner, I'm not a counselor or anything like that. So that that kind of work continues, but with Black Rainbow. So they're doing really longer term stuff where it's around, you know, mental health and Indigenous suicide and that sort of stuff in our queer communities. So I was reading an interview with Black Rainbow's founder, Damon, mm-hmm. and he was talking about how the intersection of queerness and um, Aboriginality 
people feel like a double whammy of loneliness because yep. they face homophobia and racism. Yep. And the way to help a lot of um, queer young kids is to help them connect back with their cultures. Mm-hmm. But is is homophobia very prevalent in a lot of First Nations cultures? I'm very, very firmly of the belief that homophobia transphobia like queer phobia in all of its forms is a hangover from the missions Mm -hmm. some of our oldest rock art depicts same gender couples Mm. in a lot of communities folks who were trans or gender diverse held revered positions in society because they were able to walk multiple worlds and Mm. all of this sort of stuff like the gender binary in and of itself is a colonial construct. Mm -hmm. We never had that. We've obviously like, we have men and women's business, but we also had like in, in my mob, we had at least that have been identified 26 different genders, you know, like this whole idea that there are men and there are women and they can only love each other. That came with the tall ships. That's not something that was ever part of, who we were as a culture. So when I travelled around into communities, you know, it was it was fucking terrifying because it's like you walk in with your heart in your sleeve being like, hello, I'm a big gay and I'm also a black fella. Please don't reject me. Shit. Um, but, but the reality of what ended up happening was that most of the crap that I heard was not from, not from black communities. It was from mostly white people that seem to have this misconception that queerness in all of its forms is not part of Aboriginal values and, and cultural systems of belief. And that was part of the reason why we set up Blackfellas for Marriage Equality in the Mm -hmm. first place. Like I can name some queer Aboriginal people, but that's because I am a queer Aboriginal person and I have friends who are as well. But it's like, when you think about what, where is that represented? anywhere like if I was just some if I was Edie and my mum wasn't let's let's pretend like I'm from a different black family so I don't have a queer mum um because that kind of skews it a little bit Mm. um but like I'm in a little country town and I have these feelings of that are abnormal from everything that is seen in you know the books I read the tv shows I watch the movies I watch and you know the feeds on the on the internet how am i ever meant to figure out that that's okay yeah so part of what we wanted to do was flood communities with positive representation and that's not to say that representation fix every fixes everything i don't think it does it's the first step in like a whole body of work mm. but um to flood communities with depiction like positive depictions of queer black affection and families and and the way that we show our love and express our love and express our gender and all of this sort of stuff um i was sitting down with this young kid like he was eight or nine and watching the catharsis ripple over his face as he started crying but not because he was sad crying but because he like and he said like i thought i was the only one and the relief that you could see happening, like you could, it was like you could see his muscles unknot. Yeah. 
to facilitate some of that relief was really is really like something that wow. I it's an it's a real privilege to be able to put your handprint on someone's soul in that mm-hmm. way. Um, and How lucky for that kid that he met you and had that conversation with you because we never know. We never know. I mean, kids as young as nine or ten are completing suicide yeah. in Aboriginal communities. Uh, that is unbelievably shocking. And, and so, and we don't even have any data. I've, I, I, through my research, I found out we don't have any specific data on how many um, LGBTQIA plus Aboriginal kids yeah, no, we don't have anything. are um, suicidal. Or yep. have completed suicide. Yep. So you never know what your representation, what being yourself could mean to somebody yep. when they needed it. But they can go on Instagram mm-hmm. or Facebook mm-hmm. and see something that makes them feel less lonely. Yeah. I was watching this interview. No, I was um, on the Instagram of this young activist called Aretha Stewart-Brown. Mm-hmm. I know Aretha, Yeah. So she was saying in an Instagram post that she often feels like there's no space for her to talk about queerness because she has to talk about race first. Yep. That's a battle that needs to be fought constantly even before she can acknowledge all of the other aspects of her identity. Yeah. Do you feel that? I mean, it's one of those things where, like, at least for me personally, I'm always going to be black first. I'm black first, queer second, I'm black first, I'm a unionist second, even though they're like these, I'm black first and I'm a woman second, they're all incredibly important aspects of who I am. When I was travelling and going into communities with blackfellas for marriage equality, um, a lot of what I would hear and then the messages that would get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of that sort of stuff is was, yeah, along the lines of there's never been a vehicle for me to talk about the intersection between my race and my gender identity or my sexuality or any combination of the above, because I mean, we're still fighting for our lives in a lot of ways. Like it's you, you triage and, and it's hard and it's complex, but if it's the choice between keeping that kid over there alive or keeping this community open when governments are trying to shut down remote communities. Like, what the fuck is that? Anyway, and it's the choice between campaigning on that or campaigning on black queerness in the tri- in the triage because we're bleeding out. Yeah. I can't I can't let that slide. And it's it's a constant sort of source of tension and it's the same it's the same when I'm talking about black womanhood or black unionism and that sort of stuff. It's like I wake up every morning and have to put on my armor because mm. I have to go out and go to war again. You know, like yeah. it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard to kind of balance all of these things. And then also set time aside from set time aside for me to be like, cool. I'm Edie the human yeah. going about her day now today. Like, don't think about work. Don't think about these things. Try not to think about, you know, the Aboriginal slave labour happening in remote, like, out in remote communities or the fact that a mega coal mine is going to not only fuck the planet but, like, 
fuck sacred sacred water source for like for a bunch of people try not to think about it just go get go get some brunch go get some brunch hang out with your queer mates like like natter and gossip and have a giggle about i don't know what we think about the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race or something like that. It's like, it's really hard Mm. to even like carve out that kind of time to be a person in all of my complexities and intersections and also just like have a bit of fun. Yeah. 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 Um, So like, I totally understand what Aretha says when, when she can't find time to talk about queerness because it's always about blackness, but in the same token, I don't really have a choice because it's, a constant state of you know treading water to keep my head above yeah yeah caring about things is really like it's exhausting it is exhausting i often feel like i just don't want to be a vegan feminist person of color woman i i wish i was ignorant i wish like (laughs) sometimes i was having this conversation last night actually like I wish that there was just like a little switch that I could flip in my brain mm. and just flip it off just for like a day. Yeah. And and be that asshole who does not give a flying fuck about anyone else. <laughs> and just do me. Do you meditate or something like that to switch off at least for some time in a week? Well, it's going to sound really dorky. Um, and I guess like it is actually like a conduit for mindfulness or whatever you want to call it. But, mm. um, I cross stitch. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I do. That's so, well, that's very hipster of you. First of all, mm. well, done. well, I've been cross stitching with my grandma since like I was four or five. Mm. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like, I've got my little kit next to the couch. I'll sit on the couch, put my feet up on the rest. Uh, me and my housemates will watch some trash and I will cross stitch probably something filthy um <laughs> as like a birthday present or something in the house or like that's it's yeah. kind of like how i because it's just like a repetitive motion where you kind of have to pay attention enough that you can't really think about anything too complex perfect for in front of the t- yeah yeah oh that's absolutely an example of mindfulness well mm. done so that that's what i do mm. <laughs> um, it's a bit dorky but nah, it's gets cool. the job done it's adorable gets the job done <laughs> <laughs> I wish that um, more people knew about like mindfulness as a concept. Yeah. Oh, I like it's a. I was a very anxious kid. Mm. Um, which, I can tell. Uh, <laughs> very like incredibly neurotic, scared of a lot of things and all of that sort of stuff to the point where it was like probably pretty concerning for people around me. And it was kind of when I hit, I finished school age 17 and went to uni and saw a whole bunch of people like having fun and letting loose and being like, shit, why can't I do that? Why doesn't my brain work that way? Um, And asked one of my friends who was kind of at that point more on top of her shit than I was and was like, go to the GP, get a mental health plan. Doesn't mean you're crazy. It's just a little thing that you can do once every two weeks or once a month just to vent everything out of your system and then you're not bubbling it up. Um, So I sat on that for a while and was that like little shit that didn't do it for ages, but far out, I'm glad that I did. Like it's one of those things where like even now, age 26, I've been doing this for like 
six or seven years now. Once a month, I'll go in, vent my guts out. Um, and it's just like this really cathartic thing where it's so then I don't have to worry about putting that emotional labor onto my friends and being like the world's on fire and I'm really sad about it or I'm really angry about it. It's not like any one particular thing. I just need to get this out of my system. Mm. Um, and it's just like, and that's where I sort of learned about meditation and mindfulness and all of that sort of thing. And like being able to sort of ground yourself in where you are and clear your mind and be able to look at things and yeah. Yeah, it was honestly like the best thing I ever did for myself. Yeah. I absolutely yeah, I absolutely recommend therapy to everyone. Like, it's liberating, like just being able to be like, yeah, yeah, and then walk out and be like, cool. I'm gonna go have a cup of tea and walk my dog and go back to my day to day life now because all of these things that were like banging against the door in my mind, I've just sort of opened it up, let them fuck off, and yeah. and go on with it with stuff yeah i'm at the point now where i actually would prefer to date somebody that also goes to therapy oh absolutely absolutely (laughs) because i'm thinking like i'm doing all of this work on myself you know i need to be with somebody that's also Mm -hmm. aware Mm -hmm. and like open i i'm actually (laughs) even at the point where i prefer not to date people that are apolitical like if they write on bumble apolitical Mm -mm. i'm like "Mm -mm. you gotta be you gotta be liberal you have to have a political opinion then only can we connect. It's like you need to care about something other than yourself. Yeah. That's pretty hot to me. Um, <laughs> but um, it's a sort of one of those things where as soon as it becomes known that, I mean, it's obvious that I'm queer because I'm only talking to other queer folk, but um, that I am Aboriginal and work in the progressive left, it's this sort of double-edged sword where it's a really good way of sifting out people who are like anti-union and like super racist and that sort of stuff. But then you also get this really, it's so frustrating, this like tokenism and fetishization of the fact that like they want to say that they're dating an Aboriginal person and they're dating an Aboriginal woman. Wow. Um, and it's, it's super, super common for a bunch of people that I know. Um, so it's absolutely not just me where it's sort of like, you get woke points or something for like having your black accessory. Um, so it's kind of this like really double edged sword where it's cause you put it on the table so you can sift out these assholes, but then also you, you can attract a different flavor of asshole. Yeah. Um, Oh man. I mean, how do young kids not have trust issues about, oh. about their peers? Yeah, I mean, as it is, dating is like fucking... Dating's the worst. It's the worst. Oh, my God. I don't know why people say they enjoy it. it you date only so you can stop dating. Uh, well, right? some people do. I do, at least. Oh, I would, like, first dates? <laughs> nah. First nah. dates are the worst. It's like, they can ch- we just skip to the part where... It's not super awkward. Yeah. And, like, can we just skip to the bit where I've already vetted you for, like, all of those things that are non-negotiables for me? Yeah. Um, and be at a place where we know that we get along already. So now not only are (laughs) people trying to figure out if the other person's going to be a waste of their time, like I'm actually taking out time on my Friday night Mm -hmm. to come and meet you, or I'm texting with you and like spending minutes and brain cells on you. Yep. But also they now have to figure out not only are they, um, whether they're going to be worth it, but also whether they're actually fetishizing you. Yes. And so that's a really common thing yes. for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander oh, kids. Oh, yes. 
Wow. Oh, yes. And it's it's sort of one of those things where it's like, God damn, I wish that I could just date another black fella. But, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous. But I've got East Coast and West Coast black fella blood in me. The amount of times that I meet people I'm related to in oh. Melbourne. <sighs> what do you count as a relation? Like, what level of cousin? Um, nearly dated a second cousin. Okay. And oh, then no, we, that's a cousin. <laughs> and then we were like, we looked at the family tree and went, oh, no. No. Nah. <laughs> no. Do you walk around with your family tree folded in your pocket and if <laughs> you meet oh, someone, you just bring it out and lives swap in it. my mind palace now. <laughs> um, like, thanks. Like, we hadn't even kissed at that point. Like, we were Thank just God. like hanging out, like, because we met through someone else, like hanging out at a pub, having a beer. The flirting was extreme and then died immediately when we were both like, oh. No. Yeah, I, I would stop counting cousin at third. I don't know. I mean, I don't have the hearts for any of my third cousins, so that's not why I'm saying this. But <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, like you could just go on counting cousins forever. So second cousin is still a cousin because that's, that's your parents' cou- cousin's kid. Yeah. yeah. But a third cousin is like, I don't know. Fairly removed. Oh, it's Attention just... to any of Edie's third cousins listening in. <laughs> she is not single, as I've found out. <laughs> you aren't, are you? Okay, she's not on the market, so look elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Is there, like, enough dating advice out there for Aboriginal kids, queer Ooh. Aboriginal kids? Gen- like, this is genuinely one of the things that I've been considering maybe even doing. Like, I don't know what it looks like. Is it a blog? Is it a podcast? I don't know. But, like, it's so fucking fraught. And I think... That if I were to do something like that, because there's enough of there's enough like Facebook groups where we will talk about it or chats where we talk about it, and I don't think that it's particularly entirely isolated to First Nations folk. I think that it would probably be a bit broader in scope and be like First Nations and people of color talking about racism and fetishization in the dating world, because mm. like that's that's a PhD waiting to happen. Like it's <laughs> it's such a beast of a topic. Mm. Um, spanning anywhere from like the, your classic no fats, no fems, no Asians on Grinder to like, you know, the settler woman who wants to date me and take me to events and introduce me as their white, as their Aboriginal girlfriend or something like that. Like there's just such a spectrum of it. Yeah. Um, I see an Instagram account. Like I see things like, funny screenshots of your text messages with friends, mm. even if they're made up, but mm. things that are like graphic yeah. little visual things for kids to look at that and go, that they can share in their stories and stuff and go, yeah. oh, yeah, right. <laughs> That's what that was. That's what, and, oh, you yeah. know, little wars happening in the comment section or... Yeah. I, I, I feel like Instagram would be a good place. So do it. Mm. Really do it. Well, it, it's such a thing, like that so many blackfellas and people of colour experience and you've got no warning. It just happens to you one day when you hit an age where you're trying to date and you're like, oh, no, oh, surprise, shit. Oh, it's like at least give someone a warning. Yeah. Sex (laughs) education is anyway pretty shit in Australia. Oh, horrendous. uh, (laughs) But I can imagine that sex education for queer kids is even 
worse. Mm -hmm. And then in a lot of communities where there isn't good funding for education uh, for Aboriginal kids, that like doesn't exist. Where where so where do people? Okay, so. You grew up in a very woke household. Yes. But what about kids that don't grow up in woke households or grow up in very non like mm. non communicative households? Where do they get their sex ed from? Porn. Yeah. But the porn isn't even representative. No. Porn is white, very white. Yes. It's sort of like skinny. And then white. it plays into like the whole desirability thing as well, yeah. where we're like the only people that can be hot and sexy or whatever are these like skinny hairless white people and it's like i am a hairy aboriginal like yeah um i wish that there was more uh i i I was i found out that a lot of funding that should be going to aboriginal health services to education programs for kids like reach out programs is being diverted to other stuff like farming yeah and fishing in a lot of communities scullion so last We've now, he's since retired. See, Who's Aiden. that Nigel Scullion? Nigel Scullion was the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. He retired. Is he Aboriginal? The, no. <laughs> oh my God, no. He's this like white baby boomer who likes to fish. Ugh. You know, representative of the people. Um, and it was at the beginning of... The at the end of last year, he – and it's one of those things, it's like people don't really give that much of a collective shit about Indigenous affairs. So to me it was like scandal but didn't really get much of a media run in the same way as, you know, like Barnaby Joyce has another baby. Ugh. But it's Nigel Scullion got busted – diverting funding for indigenous as you're saying health programs and education and that sort of stuff not just to like farmers and fishers but people who were actively trying to undermine native title Mm. so people funding for us got given to settler organizations to undermine our right uh, to consent or not consent to particular things happening on our country. Like it wasn't just going to the wrong people. It was going to the people that to undermine what we were doing. It was like, this is, this is so unbearably corrupt. I can't even wrap my head around it's it. It's cruel. It's but so not cruel. a peep because people, it's just, I don't know. People don't really see. And I don't think they'd ever say like outright, I don't think Aboriginal people are real people. Um, but it's sort of like this insidious in the back of people's minds. It's like you don't fully recognize our humanity, though, and you'll never admit it. And you probably don't realize that that's what this is. Mm. But the fact that you don't care that we have 9, 10, 11-year-olds completing suicide and that that's not a national crisis or the fact that money is being stripped from us and given to these people – or the fact that in remote communities we have at least 33,000 Indigenous folks in slave, in slave labour, the fact that you don't know or care about that tells me that you you don't see us as fully human. And this, <gasps> there's only two people currently in the House of Representatives yep. that are Aboriginal. Overall, I think there, I don't know if right now there are five or seven, 
but it's... very few, and, and most of them are in the Senate. Yeah. There isn't anybody in politics to no. represent these needs of First Nations communities. Um, so what would... Uh, but we need young people, mm-hmm. right, in politics. Not just older people, but young people. So what would you be your wish list for a young parliamentarian politician who is Aboriginal of Torres Strait Islander? What what do you want them to talk about? What do you want them to represent? What do you like that is affecting young people? Shit, where do you start? Is it closing the gap? Is it like funding? Is it treaty? Is it treaties? Is it like I... Uh... Oh, what a massive task. Sorry I asked you this oh, question with an I'm impossible... I'm going to have an existential crisis over it. Like, <laughs> shit. Um, <laughs> take it back, I take it back, I take it back. Because at least in my job I can narrow the scope a little bit. Mm. But it's like, oh, my God, where do you even... like? Where do you even begin? What's, what would the hill be that I would be willing to die on? Because I know what my hill is in my job now. Mm. But, like, that's so broad. Yeah. It's... Would you ever want to be in politics? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I just... We need you. Uh, uh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, wow, you're just shuddering. <laughs> no, it's... I don't know. It's one of those sources of tension for me. And I, I think I'm still kind of working out where I stand on it because there's kind of like conflicting schools of thought in terms of like we've got really low participation in voting mm-hmm. and there are a lot of reasons to that that can span from you know a political decision to not recognize the legitimacy of a colonial parliament right through to fear because if they're registered with the government the government will know where they are where these people live and can take their kids away again. So there's like, there's this like real breadth of reasons why a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't participate in sort of our organized political structures. And and the thing that, I mean, I vote, I have always voted. I will always vote because I would rather stand in this inside the tent and piss than try and stand outside <laughs> the tent with it zipped up and try and pee into it. Um, disgusting analogy that yeah. I just busted out there. I'm sorry. No, no, that's um, fine. <laughs> Interesting analogy. <laughs> I stole it from my dad. Um, <laughs> but it's I can really understand why folks don't. And it's sort of how how do we fight and how do we win black fights within white settler colonial structures like our parliamentary system? Is it even possible? And I guess sort of where I'm leaning to is that we need to have this really radical restructuring of the way that we conceptualize and engage in democracy. But with that said, that's such a long way away. Like I can't sit back and watch everything keep burning while I scream from outside of this system so it's kind of like the tension lies in do I wheedle in there and try and fix it from the inside is that even possible like Mm. 
how do you decolonize a structure that is based on the myth that we were never here in the first place? Mm. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It sounds so, I mean, I am sorry. I put you in the spotlight. No, because even as you're talking, I realize it's so tiring for a young person like yourself to take on all of this responsibility. You you know, you're acknowledging that you have a voice, you have skills, and then you're acknowledging that, you know, you have, that you might have to do something about it and I can co- totally understand how tired you must be. In that uh, documentary that I watched about uh, Australia's first black prime minister, one of the kids in a school in Broome that the host of the documentary uh, went to his old school and asked kids if they could ever see themselves being in politics and one of the kids, oh, he would have probably been eight nine he goes yeah people don't trust us and i thought oh, oh for a child to say yeah. that i mean how much uh, is it coming off in waves from the world around them that a child recognized that yeah that's um, and so this philosophical question of people don't trust us people in this country in the world don't acknowledge us and that our needs our feelings our culture our everything wow i can imagine what it does to a kid to a young person it's a real doozy i don't know and i think i think that part of what i need and what we need to do is to actually just keep having frank and open conversations about these tensions because that's what they are they're tensions and we'll never be able to sort of work our way through it at least i'm not the kind of person that can can figure that sort of stuff out just in my own head. I'm such a talker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such Me a talker. Too. Like, we just need to keep having these really frank conversations about structures yeah. and systems and how power works and mm. all of this sort of stuff. We need to talk to these so that kids have a little outlet to vent mm-hmm. the built-up tension yep. in their in their hearts. How do you use the word decolonize before? Mm-hmm. Obviously, young people can't decolonize themselves. They don't have the life skills. They don't have the maturity. But what can? What are some of the ways that they can start thinking about their identities and sort of decolonize a, to whatever extent their self images? Their well, you know, it's. There's sort of more and more things popping up that are explicitly for young people. So we've got the Koori Youth Council here in Victoria that run free stuff for young mob that comes down, like could be learn how to weave or like come and hang out with elders for the afternoon. We'll paint up, make your own possum skin cloak, stuff like that, where it's just like these little acts of relearning what has been lost and that sort of stuff. And if that's not something that's accessible to you, like just consume black media Mm. or something like that. You know, you've got black comedy, which is an absolute pisser. I don't, I'm not sure that settlers get how funny black comedy is, but it's, it's really good. Um, I haven't watched it. It's pretty funny. What about like Uh, reality TV, like family rules? Oh, I love family rules. I love it. It's like, it's just, it's like the wholesome content that my heart needs. Cause it's one of those things. This is a rant that I go on all the time. Um, but 
to be especially black woman to get half as far I need to be three times as good yeah we talk about black excellence and that's all good and well but you know what I'm interested in celebrating black mediocrity yeah where's the like just I'm in my trackies at Coles trying to do like about my life like let's celebrate just everyday black existence like I don't need to be some rocket scientist neurosurgeon like wild whatever absolutely like Let's just celebrate black mediocrity. Mm. The realness and the everydayness of just humanness mm. of, of being a Aboriginal yeah. Torres Strait Islander person. Yeah. Like, and that's kind of like, I still think Family Rules is like excellent and the women in that are exceptional, but it's like getting closer to the realm yeah. of, it's like. Yeah, like you see them in their everyday goofy situations. Yeah. And you just know that... They're normal people. They're normal people. And I like the fact that they have people of so many different age groups, right? From yep. the youngest person to their mum to, you know. Yep. Um, okay, so NAIDOC week is coming up in a couple of first weeks. weeks of, first week of July. What are you going to be doing? Um, so I run an event every year. Um, this year I am running an event called Black Issues in a White Democracy, which is basically an extension of the yarn that we've been having. Mm. So... We've got a bunch of really rad black fellas lined up, um, including Lara Watson, who does a lot of work on the community development program, which is the Aboriginal version of Work for the Doll. It's really good. Um, and Sharina Clanton, who went semi-viral, losing it at Josh Frydenberg on Q&A, in, is an actor in Wentworth, and she's deadly. Oh, I have to watch that. Um, she is deadly as... Um, so free event at Trades Hall, we've got food trucks and a bar and we'll just hang out and have a yarn and answer questions and that sort of stuff. So should be good fun. Plus cool. there's the NADOC March. So that's on the Wednesday. So that's the 3rd of July. And then on the Friday is the big NADOC March, which is you get to see a whole bunch of kids, like especially the young kids painted up, celebrating their culture, doing their dances and singing songs and that sort of stuff is always really lovely as well. Nice. You're going to be very busy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, how do people find out about um, the panel that you just talked about? Um, so basically all you have to do is Google Black Issues White Democracy or Trades Hall NADOC and it will come up. Um, otherwise you can go on the NADOC website and it's got like the full list of community events as well. Um, there's always a lot of stuff that goes on sort of right across the country for NADOC and it's always good fun fun because unlike reckon we've got national reconciliation week i see that as something for white people you know i don't have to reconcile with myself Mm. but nadoc is like the unapologetic celebration of us and it's this week that's born out of protest and it started off as a day and it's like a whole week that's just about black people telling black stories and celebrating who we are and our culture and i mean settlers can participate if they want but like whether they come or not we're gonna have a deadly time and have heaps of fun it's like it's definitely like the build up to it is very stressful Mm. but like so fun and it's it's an absolute it's like that one week reprieve where you're not the minority somewhere it's Mm. like oh, you brought your white friend. That's nice (laughs) for them rather than the other way around. Like it's just, it's so nice. 
it's just like this real, like ton of bricks off your shoulders for a week where like you're at Nadoc Ball or yeah. at the Mar. It's yeah. It's and then you can just be yourself rather than trying to navigate the difference between you and everyone else. Yep. Then you can be your individual self. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yep. that sounds fun. It's so much fun. Get around Nadoc. It's good time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Edie. Anytime. This was a really fun conversation. <laughs> we talked about some really heavy stuff, but I feel like what is what in life isn't a combination of heavy and comedy and just the Absolutely. irony of being alive. Absolutely. And like, if I'm going to talk about what keeps me up at night, I'm going to have a giggle about it as I do it. Yeah. You know, like if... If I if people don't have a sense of humor about stuff, that's that's when it gets really bad. Yeah. <laughs> Are you on Instagram where people can see you or No, I'm I'm actually not. I'm like old man yells at cloud. I don't quite know how to do it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't really know how to do it. I am on Twitter though. Okay. Uh Edie Sheps. Or I I post random rants about unionism or black stuff or black unionism, which is generally the the vibe. Um, plus a whole bunch of sweet NADOC content. So cool. Get well, around it. we will link your Twitter account in the show notes. Cool. And everybody go and check out Edie Sheps. And thank you, Edie Shepherd. <laughs> you are awesome. I love so your are you. Thank you. <laughs>